Everybody doing okay? Good? Good. So I had the joy of telling the other three services this weekend what happened in our time last week when my zipper broke um, right before I walked up here. If you weren't here last week, it was, it was the worst weekend of my life. So uh, it, was, it was pretty terrible. Not really, but um, I was telling people I have two great fears, snakes and walking up in front of a large group of people and forgetting to zip up my pants. And last week I had no choice. So it's my zipper broke and, and there we were. So I don't know if I shared this last week, but <laughs> I'm back in the back and you know, my, my, my zipper breaks and Kyle's about to wrap up the last song and he's starting to pray. And I'm like, what do we do? So I saw one of the security guys on staff and I said, hey, like, you know, I got to figure, like find some safety pins or something. And they didn't put that my pants had broke. They just put Corey emergency. So all the security guys like flooded <laughs> to me. And, um, and then they finally found out what it was. And so <laughs> first guy who runs, is, runs in is Phil and he had pliers and a zip tie. And I'm like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then Jesse Scott, he's another, he's a police officer in Lebanon. He runs in and he's got a knife. And I'm like, okay, let's think harder. <laughs> like, 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 let's, let's keep exploring options here. And, uh, <laughs> and what ended up happening is, and thank God no one walked in. I ended up in this bathroom over here and Mitch, who was leading worship up here, had a stapler and he was trying to staple the front of my pants. So I'm standing there and he's got a stapler in my pants and he's like, this is going to work. And I'm like, this isn't going to work. It didn't work. <laughs> so now I have about 6,000 uh, safety pins in my office and, and now Phil is walking around with like a Corey emergency bag. That's a real thing. And it has like a belt in it. It has like a sewing kit. <laughs> you know, anything, just... Let me tell you how you know you're getting old. It's the 11. We just have all the time. So um, obviously I needed new jeans. These are not new jeans because let me tell you how cheap I am. I went to Old Navy and I'm like, man, these jeans, like I'm old and chubby. Like I can't wear skinny jeans from Old Navy anymore. And um, I don't think I ever could, but uh, ended up going to Old Navy. I saw a really sweet lady that comes to church and I'm looking at jeans and she goes, pastor, you looking at jeans? And I'm like, yes, 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 I am. I need jeans. Anyways, um, Left there, this is how you know you're getting old. I, I, I ended up at JCPenney. <laughs> and, not, yeah. <laughs> and not just that, like, I wasn't going to pay the prices they were asking for jeans in JCPenney. It's like 50, bu- 50 bucks for jeans. And, and that's how you know you're old. When you're in a JCPenney saying, I'm not going to pay that for jeans. And I didn't. And we left. And my wife's like, you need jeans. And I'm like, I'm not going to pay 50 bucks for jeans. I'm sorry. Get some jeans at Sam's club or something. I don't know. (laughs) Figure something out. Anyways, we're in the book of Matthew. Thank you guys for being here. I know it was a freak show last week. I'm so glad you're back at church. So, uh, we've been working through the gospel of Matthew. We've been working through it all year. And, um, Chapter 26, that's where we're going to be today. And we're only going to do half of it because it's a very, very long chapter. So we're actually not even going to do quite half of it, a little bit less. But we're getting into some pretty serious stuff. And and we're going to end on a very light note. Um, I needed to end on a light note this week. So I purposely ended it at a very light note this week. Um, But we're in a pretty dark part of the Bible. What I mean by that is Jesus is not only in chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the end times, the future, right? Right? And so when we talked about chapter 25 last week, we asked ourselves, can we be spiritually myopic at time? What that means is, can we be nearsighted? Can we get caught so, so much up in the moment that we forget about the future? And I think a lot of us probably this year have, have fallen victim to that, right? We haven't prepared the way we should. So that's what we talked about in chapter 25. Jesus is talking about eternity. Jesus mentions hell three times. And just in chapter 25 of Matthew, it's a pretty heavy chapter. As we get into chapter 26, we're going to talk a lot about communion tonight or today. And we're going to talk about, I don't want to say a new character, but we haven't talked about him much up until this point, a man named Judas Iscariot. Now, if you've never heard of Judas, which I would say most people have, um, he's probably one of the, the, the great villains of the Bible, if you will, bad guy. But what we're going to talk about today is a lot of us have been Judas We've done the same things that, that we have, uh, that he has to Jesus. And so here's what we're going to talk about. I'm not sure if Judas fully understood who Jesus was. That's why he acted the way he did. I'll, we'll talk about that later. 
So we have to ask ourselves, do we fully know who Jesus is? And are we willing to take the steps to fully know who Jesus is? Okay, because what we think about Jesus's identity will dictate how we live. Okay, so we're gonna talk about that a little bit today and we'll end on a good positive note. I know the first word up here is murderous, but we will end up on a good positive note, I promise. I need it, you need it, we all need it, okay? So let me pray. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a, a smartphone, Experience Community app, it's really helpful. If you got an old school copy of the scriptures, we're in the first book of the New Testament, uh, 26th chapter, we're gonna do about half of it, okay? And um, we should be in good shape, all right? Okay, let me pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much that our church can laugh together, Lord, that we can have a good time. Um, God, this is my family. These are my brothers, my sisters, my friends, God. Uh, so I just pray, Lord, as we get into your word today, God, that you just sharpen us, that you, you bless our church. Um, we pray, God, not just for our church, though. We pray for every church in our city, Lord. We pray for the great nonprofits, Lord, that are working overtime right now to, to do what they can for the less fortunate, God, and um, we just pray blessings over them. We pray, God, that everything we talk about today, Lord, that it, that it makes us better people, Lord, that it brings us closer to you, and then, of course, ultimately, God, that everything we talk about today, Lord, that, that it honors you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Keep your hand on us as we uh, work through your word, and we pray all these things in your son's name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit. We'll go back and break it down. I think you'll find this, this, uh, this chapter very, very interesting. Okay, here we go. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know, the Passover takes place after two days and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Okay, so if you have not been with me for the book of Matthew, what Matthew, the author of this book of the Bible, what he has been doing is he's been building a case for Jesus's identity. The first 25 chapters, which he originally didn't write them in chapters, but we put chapters to him. The first 25 chapters of Matthew, Matthew is trying to, to persuade us of Jesus's identity. Now, at this point, he feels like he has persuaded the reader. That's us. So now he's going to go on and tell us what Jesus came to do, to be crucified and to resurrect, okay? So this was going to take place during what was called the Passover festival. This was a huge celebration. Hundreds of thousands of people would have poured into Jerusalem. It would have looked like New York City it, it, during New Year's, not this New Year's, but any normal New Year's, all kinds of people crowded around. And what this festival celebrated over several days was the Jewish people's deliverance from Egypt, okay? That's what this was celebrating. Now, that was done on purpose. Jesus purposefully chose to be crucified during this time for a reason. The timing makes a lot of sense. So the Passover festival was when the, the, the Jewish people, it goes back, I think it's Exodus chapter 14, if you ever wanna go back and read it. They killed a lamb, they sacrificed a lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of death flew over, and so it not only saved the people from dying, it delivered them from slavery, it saved them, okay? So Jesus was going to do the same thing. He was going to replace the Passover sacrifice, and he was gonna become the ultimate sacrifice. He was going to shed his blood, which would save humanity, it would save them from eternal death and give them eternal life, it would save them from the slavery of sin, that's what the cross was going to be. So all this was done on purpose. Now when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm gonna be crucified, they were probably mortified by the idea, not only of him dying, but the way he was going to die. Crucifixion was the worst. Most of the time, and again, in the movies and stuff, they can't do this because it's, it's nudity, but most of the time they would crucify men completely naked. So not only was it humiliating, they would beat them, they would flog them, they would, they would literally nail their bodies to wood and they would hang there until they would asphyxiate, I can't hardly say that word, where they would suffocate, right? And they would die. It was very, very terrible, very, very painful, very, very humiliating. That's how they killed criminals, and Jesus said, that's how I'm going to die. 
And so his friends were probably mortified by this idea. Now, who was going to kill Jesus? Well, it was the Romans that actually did the real dirty work, but it was the Jewish religious leaders that set it all up. They were the ones that conspired to have Jesus killed. Now, the religious leaders didn't just disagree with Jesus. Again, if you have not been here, the other big villains of kind of the New Testament are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people. And they grew to hate Jesus so much that they wanted him dead. They were going to arrest him in a treacherous way, which means illegally. They were gonna break their own laws because they hated this man so much and they were gonna have him killed in the most horrific way. Now listen, I'm not trying to be a jerk today because I'm telling you, we're gonna gonna try to be as positive as we can today. But in 2020, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen it. A lot of people who claim to follow God have been extremely hateful this year. Extremely hateful. Now what leads someone that claims to follow God to be extremely hateful? The same things that lead us to act the way that a lot of us have this year that, that cause people to act the way they did when Jesus was crucified are these things. The people who had Jesus crucified, they feared losing control. Let that one sink in for a second. Can't tell you how many hundreds of people have lost, uh, uh, have stopped coming to this church because they refused to wear a mask. You can't control me. Okay, all right. I can't tell you how many people have done that. So we have this fear of losing control. We have a fear of losing an argument. And we have the fear of not being the most popular. And if we're not careful, if we fall into those traps, we end up hating the opposition. Where Jesus says to love the opposition. We can claim to be the people of God, but we end up hating the opposition. Do we fall into these kind of traps at times? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Yes, we do fall into these kinds of traps. And we have to be careful not to hang in those traps too long. So we're introduced to another character. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later. Um, The high priest, a man named Caiaphas. So though Caiaphas and the other religious leaders conspired and they plotted and they planned and they said, we're going to kill Jesus, but we're not going to do it exactly at this moment because there'll be a riot in the streets because people love Jesus at this time. And though they thought they were in control and they thought they were clever, God was in control the whole time. So they thought that they knew what they were doing, but it was actually Jesus who was orchestrating everything. So here's what's important. Jesus was purposefully going to be killed during the Passover festival because Jesus' sacrifice was going to replace the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The sacrifices that liberated the Jews in the past, he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice for all of humanity, a perfect new sacrifice, okay? And that's what we're working towards. Let's move to to the next part. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. And aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a noble thing for me. You will always have the poor with you but you won't always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, the man named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So Bethany was just a couple of miles out of town. So Jesus was going to stay out of, because again, Jerusalem would have been packed with people. So Jesus stays a couple of miles out of town with a buddy of his named Simon the leper. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Simon, but we can infer a couple of things. One, that he used to have leprosy because his name was Simon the leper, right? So we can assume that, and we can assume that he was one of the hundreds of people that Jesus healed of leprosy. That's one, one assumption. The other assumption is, is we can assume that he and Jesus had become pretty good friends, right? Not only is Jesus, you know, crashing at his house for, for a little bit, 
They're sitting at the table. They're talking. They're eating. They're, they're reclining. They're relaxing. And as they're doing this, Jesus, Simon, the, the, the other disciples, while relaxing and eating, a woman walks up behind Jesus, opens up an alabaster jar of ridiculously expensive perfume, pours it on Jesus's head. Now, this sounds crazy to us in our culture, right? If you're asked over for dinner and all of a sudden a woman starts pouring expensive perfume on you, you're like, what's happening here? Well, we'll get to that here in a second. Now, we don't know for sure who this Mary was, but a lot of theologians believe it was Mary Magdalene. So she came from a really, really rough background, was saved by Jesus. Great story about her in the Bible. But anyways, we don't know for sure, but it was probably Mary Magdalene. So what in the heck is up with this perfume? When it says an expensive uh, uh, jar of perfume, this perfume would have been worth a year's wage. So listen, like I like Sauvage. Johnny Depp wears it, so I assume it's good for me too. So anyways, I, and, and it's, it's like, kind of expensive cologne. It's like a hundred bucks for a little thing. I only wear it on the weekends, right? Because I can't afford to wear it every day. Now that's like a hundred dollars. Now, if you think about a perfume that was worth the average person's annual salary, let's say 50 grand for a bottle of, of this perfume, that's some pretty expensive stuff. Now this kind of perfume probably came from India. It doesn't say that, but more than likely that's probably where it came from. This is the same kind of perfume or ointment that, they, that, that the Romans would pour on Caesars when they were crowned. This is the same kind of perfume or ointment that the Jewish people would pour and anoint their kings with in the Old Testament. So why is all this important? What is up with the, with the perfume? The reason all this is important, listen to this, this is so cool. So the Romans would, would, would anoint their Caesars, the Jews would anoint their kings, Mary knew exactly who was sitting at that table. This wasn't just a king. This was the king of the universe. This was the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So it wasn't a big deal for her to take the most expensive jar of perfume ever, right? And pour it on that king because she understood that was the king of all kings, the creator of all things. She knew exactly who Jesus was. She understood fully Listen, this is so important. And when you understand who Jesus is, it's no big deal to give everything. And that's what she did. She gave it all, poured it right on his head. And the other disciples see this and they're like, what in the heck? Now, listen, we got to show the disciples grace. We, we tend to pick on people in the Bible when we do all the same things, right? In chapter 25, Jesus just taught his disciples. If you go back one chapter, Feed the poor, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner, basically bless the less fortunate. Jesus just taught them that. So when they see $50,000 get poured on his head, they're like, how many people could we have fed with that? How many things could we have done with that? And it's not a bad argument. But what Jesus teaches them is their priorities are wrong. Here's the thing. We are to love other people and bless other people. But first and foremost, we have to give our best to God. We give our best to God first, and then we bless the community around us. So Jesus says it's not one or the other. It's both. But this comes first, and then this comes second. That's what he was teaching them. So he set some straight. So the disciples must have been kind of mean to Mary. We don't know what they said, but, but obviously they said something because Jesus said, stop, stop bothering this woman. Stop giving this woman a hard time. And it wasn't just about what she was doing with what she had. It was when she was doing it. So you know what that tells us is there are seasons in our life. So when you first become a Christian, I don't know if any of you guys were the obnoxious Christian when you got saved. I was. I got saved and like, I'm talking like the week I got saved, I'm running up to everyone and I'm like, do you know who Jesus is? And it hit me, I'm like, I guess I don't fully know who he is yet. Like I've been saved, but I haven't read the Bible yet. It wasn't my time to go out and, and, and evangelize yet. I wasn't ready to, I, I wasn't a full disciple yet. So there's a season where we're just supposed to learn, sit, learn, read the word of God. And then there's a season where we go out, right? There's a season where we gather resources, and then there's a season where we give those things away. There's different seasons, and that's okay. So it's not just what we have, but it's when we use it. How we use it, when we use it, okay? And Jesus is teaching his disciples this. So another thing he says, 
is he says, this woman has prepared me for my burial. So in, in Jewish time, what they would do, uh, I say Jewish time, back in Jesus's time, what they would do is they wouldn't bury people like we bury people here in the ground. They would usually dig out a tomb and rock. They would lay the body down on like a, a marble slab or a, a, a piece of rock. They would lay them down. They would wrap them up with cloth. They'd put spices in between every single layer and then they would pour expensive oil on them as a way to honor them, okay? So Jesus says that this woman kind of unknowingly, Mary kind of anointed him and prepared him for his death. Now this is neat. I kind of geek out over stuff like this. He says, and I can assure you wherever the gospel is taught all around the world, they're gonna tell the story of this woman. Isn't it really neat that 2,000 years later, we're talking about her? So Jesus said, they're gonna be talking about this woman all over the world as long as the gospel spreads. So today, right? Who would have thought, this woman would have never thought that by pouring out this expensive perfume and sacrificing all she had, that 2,000 years later, a bunch of people in Murfreesboro, Tennessee would be talking about this woman. But what's neat about this is this. When we give it all to Jesus and we love other people and we honor God, we have no idea how many people that will impact. We may never see it in our lifetime. One day in heaven, I believe we'll see it, right? How many people were positively impacted? But it's like those pyramid schemes, right? If one person will, will disciple three people and then those three people disciple three more people and on and on it goes, it started off with Jesus discipling 12 and now we have, what, three billion Christians on planet Earth? That's what happens, right? And so we don't know how exponentially bigger our impact is going to be if we give it all. So we have to ask ourselves, are we giving it all for Jesus? And here's where the plot twist comes in. You know, if you were watching this like a movie, this is when you go, dun, dun, dun. We find out that one of the 12 disciples is gonna stab Jesus in the back. He's gonna sell him out. You know what's crazy? It says that he was gonna sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. That was about a month's wage. So Mary pulls out a year's salary, pours it, gives it to Jesus. And Judas is gonna sell his savior out for four or $5,000. Crazy. Why in the world would Judas, think about this, a man that saw Jesus raise people from the grave, a man that saw people, uh, uh, they saw him heal the sick and make the blind see. Judas was there, he was present when Jesus miraculously fed 15,000 people on a hillside. Crazy, he saw all this. So why in the world would he have the audacity to sell Jesus out? Well, there's three reasons. One, maybe he never truly believed that Jesus was God. Maybe he never believed that. And we'll see here in a second. I'll show it out in the I'll show it to you in the next part that I read. But there's some evidence to think that maybe he didn't really believe Jesus was everything he said he was. The second thing is, is he couldn't have been that good of a friend to Jesus. Even if he didn't believe he was God, if they were really close, you wouldn't do this to a close friend. So obviously he had built no relationship with Jesus. And then the last thing is obviously he's greedy. He's selfish. So listen, we have to ask ourselves so we don't become Judas. We have to ask ourselves, do we really know who Jesus is? Do we have a relationship with Jesus? Or am I just kind of thinking about myself? And if we're not careful, if we're, if we're not doing those things, we end up becoming betrayers of God as well. Okay, next part. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him the teacher says, my time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. It's interesting. If Jesus says he's going to crash at your place, you just say yes, right? So the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he, he was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to himself or say to Jesus, surely not I, Lord. Hey, remember that word, Lord. Okay, that's important. Capital L, Lord. 
He replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that he had never been born. Judas, his betrayer replied, surely not I, rabbi. Remember that too, okay? You have said it, Jesus told him. Now, I didn't put this up on the thing. Let me tell you why those two words are important. 11 of the 12 disciples, when Jesus said, one of you is gonna betray me, they said, surely not I, Lord. Lord is kind of the highest level of respect that you can give someone. So they were acknowledging that he was the master. When it got to Judas, Judas said, surely not I, rabbi, which means you're a teacher. You're not the Lord, you're just a teacher. So he viewed, obviously Judas viewed Jesus differently than the 11 did, okay? So when it says day of unleavened bread, that's just another way of saying Passover. The reason why they called it the day of unleavened bread is when the Jewish people exited out of Egypt, they didn't have time to bake their bread with yeast in it. So that's the reason why we eat that super tasty flat stuff, right? Is, is because it commemorates when they didn't have time to put yeast. They had to run in a hurry, get out, so they made unleavened bread. So Jesus sent them into town to find a certain man. The reason why this is important is we see that Jesus is sovereign. He knows everything that's gonna happen. Go in, there's gonna be a guy. He's gonna have ample amount of room for us to celebrate Passover. Tell him that I'm here and that we're ready. It just shows that God's in control. That's why that's important. And he says this, tell the man that my time is near. If you have not been with me the last year where we've been studying Matthew, this is interesting. Think about this for a second. Jesus came to earth. He lived as a man for 33 and a half years. He's 33 and a half years old at this point. For the last three and a half years of his time on earth, every single day he lived, he knew that he was working towards his own murder. Think about that. That every day when you wake up, you know that you are one day closer to being falsely accused, beat up, spat upon, and violently killed. And you were doing it on purpose. That's what he is doing. And at this point, Jesus says, time's almost done. My time, this mission is almost over. That's pretty heavy stuff. So again, the plot continues to thicken. As they're sitting down, celebrating Passover, they're eating dinner. Not only does Jesus tell his disciples, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be killed. But he says, it's gonna be one of you guys that sells me out. And I wrote down 11 of them were shocked because one of them knew he was gonna be the one, right? Would you not know at this point that Jesus was more than just a man? That he predicted he knew all this? And they were shocked and they said, surely not I, Lord, not me. And the shock was less about that, that Jesus said it was gonna be one of them. And the shock was more of how could anyone betray this guy? He loved people. He fed them. He clothed them. He healed them. He saved them. Why would anyone want to kill Jesus? It was shocking to them. And not only did someone wanna kill him, it was gonna be one of their own, right? Right in the middle of their inner circle. And look what Jesus says. Jesus says, woe to the man that would do that. If you haven't been here, the word woe means catastrophe. It says it a lot in the book of Revelation. It means catastrophic, which means when, when the Bible says woe to you, it means if you don't change, it's gonna be really bad. It's gonna be catastrophic. Now, here's the thing that, that, that a lot of Christians do. We often talk about the, the, the lovey-dovey side of Jesus, and there is a lovey-dovey side. The Bible says it. It's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He loves you, right? Loves you fully, loves you completely, loves you even while we were still sinners. He died on the cross for us. Jesus loves us, right? That is part of God. The part that Christianity does not refer to that much is not only is Jesus a loving, loving uh, uh, friend and brother and savior, Jesus is also the authoritative king of the universe, and we have to understand our, our, our place when it comes to Jesus. And so it's amazing to me, Judas showing this kind of arrogance and, and kind of smugness when you read that. He says, not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, man, for the one that has enough guts to try to stab God in the back, 
It'd be better for that man if he was never born. So listen, all of us have betrayed Jesus at one time or another. All of us have been Judas. The difference though, is we have to come to a point to where we realize that we have rebelled against God and we have to repent for that. But if we refuse, if we're so arrogant that we, we refuse to say that we've been wrong, if we are so arrogant that we refuse to humble ourselves to Jesus, Jesus says, woe to those kinds of people. It is catastrophic. It's dangerous, right? Because God is righteous. God is just. And so when I read verse 25, when Judas, his betrayer replied, surely not I, rabbi. When I read that, I think there is absolutely no way that Judas believed that Jesus was God. Who would be so stupid to look at God, right? Look at him in the eyes and say, it's not me. This kind of smug, arrogant approach. Who would do that? And so it's real quick. I say, man, there's no way that Judas knew who he was. But then I think about myself. I don't know if anyone else can, can, can identify with this. How many times in my life have I fully known who Jesus is, but I still rebelled against him? Am I the only one in the room? How many times? I know who Jesus is. I know what he's done for me. I've even seen him do miraculous things. And I, at times, have looked at God and said, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. So here's the thing, and I'm not trying to say this to be negative, because like I said, we're gonna be positive today. <laughs> do we understand our relation to God? Listen, there's a lot of talk in modern-day American Christianity because we're so individualistic to where we think we're like on eye level with Jesus. Man, Jesus is my bro. He's my homeboy. He's not. He spoke the universe into existence. He's not like you. He's much greater than you. So whenever we talk kind of flippantly, like we're on the same level, yeah, Jesus is just my homie. No, 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 no. Jesus is going to speak everything into existence and he's gonna speak everything out of existence and he's gonna recreate it again. The book of Revelation says, no, no, no. we're not on an equal playing field. We need to know our relationship to God. It's like when Paul writes, how dare the clay look up to the artist and say, what are you doing? The artist looks down and says, I do whatever I want to do. You're the clay. I'm the one that molds you. You're the one made in my image, not the other way around. So we have to ask ourselves, are we humble in the face of Jesus? Are we submitted to Jesus? Do we have a fear of the Lord? Oh, that's that Old Testament stuff, Corey. Nope. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid of those that can kill your body. Be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. That's who we should respect and revere, right? So we need to understand he is the creator. We are the creation. We are lower than him. He is perfect. We are not, right? And we need to live in a way that honors that. Okay, all right, we're going up the positive road. Here we go. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave, his, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you in my father's kingdom. And after singing hymns, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So communion, which is what we do every single service. We've been doing it for 11 years now, as long as this church has existed. Originally communion, or some people call it the Lord's Supper, took place over hours. Sometimes people at next class will say, well, why don't we take communion the way Jesus did it with his disciples? And I said, well, that was him and 12 people. When you, when, as the church grew, I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking about Christianity grew, the methodology had to change because logistically it was impossible. It was impossible for hundreds of people or thousands of people or tens of thousands of people to get around, get around, have a two or three hour meal where they drink, you know, a couple of glasses of wine and eat a bunch of food. It, logistically, it didn't make sense. But so the method has changed with communion. The importance of communion has not it is still just as important today as it was right here in Matthew chapter 26. What the last supper was when Jesus was eating with his disciples, this was a shifting from people who follow God, from them observing Passover, the sacrifice of the past, 
It was a shift from celebrating Passover to celebrating Jesus' sacrifice for us. That doesn't mean it's wrong if you celebrate Passover. There are people that come to this church who are Jewish by blood. They believe in Jesus, but Jewish by blood. That celebrate Passover. There's nothing wrong with that. But the Christian, when we take communion, that has taken the place of the Passover festival. Okay? Very big deal that is going on in this chapter. And Jesus says, this is my body, the bread. This is my blood, the wine. So the bread that we eat and the wine that we drink when we're taking communion um, is not literally Jesus's body and blood. Now, if you were raised Catholic or Lutheran, that's what they teach. And I'm not trying to take shots at them. I'm not anti-Catholic. My in-laws are Catholic. So what they believe in is called transubstantiation, that when we take communion, it literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus. I lean more towards what is called consubstantiation. And I know you guys really care about these terms. So anyways, when we take communion, we don't literally believe that the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus, but we believe it's a little bit more than symbolism. It's not just symbolism. The Holy Spirit as it is at work in, this, in this, this thing that we do. So when we take the bread, when we take the wine, the Holy Spirit is at work there. It's a deeply spiritual thing that is called consubstantiation. The whole point of communion, though, is this. It is remembrance of what Jesus has done. It is reverence. It is, it is celebrating what he continues to do as his blood still forgives our sins. The Holy Spirit still empowers us. It's a huge deal. It's a big deal. That's, that's why sometimes I give you guys a hard time when you just rush out because that communion is very, very special. It's special because it's for the forgiveness of sins. Com communion is a tangible reminder about a real physical event, the cross, that took place and it forever shaped or reshaped humanity, how we're saved. It reshaped how we have a relationship with God. It reshaped eternity. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross that we remember with that communion offers us forgiveness. It offers us a relationship with God. It offers us eternal life with God. And we're activate, we activate this wonderful gift of salvation by repenting for our sin and just being obedient, right? Doing what the Lord tells us to do. We can have this relationship with God. Now, I ended this here on purpose. I love this. It says Jesus looks at his disciples and he's sitting there. And by this point, Judas has already slipped out. One of the other gospels tells us Judas has already slipped out at this time. So it's Jesus and the 11. Jesus is sitting there. Listen, I want you guys to like imagine this in your head. They're sitting there, they're drinking wine. They're eating some good food. They're laughing. They're talking. They're sharing stories. Maybe about all the things that had happened in the years before. They even sing a song together. I'm sure Jesus has a wonderful singing voice. <laughs> and they're all just sitting there. And Jesus looks at him and he says, enjoy this. Because we're not going to be able to do this together, me and you guys, until we meet in my father's kingdom. What that means is this. We see the heart of God in this. Listen, when we go to heaven, it's not gonna, we're not going to be like digging ditches for angels for eternity, right? It's not, gonna, it's not the way it's going to work. It's not just slaving away up in heaven. Heaven is often referred to in the Bible as like a banquet, a party, a festival. Jesus wants to sit down with us and laugh and sing a song and have a nice glass of wine and talk over good food and to celebrate. He says that to them. He says, we're going to do this again, but it's going to be on the other side. It's going to be in my father's kingdom. It's going to be in paradise that we're going to sit and we're going to talk like this. And we're going to tell stories and we're going to joke and we're going to laugh. That's what God wants from us. Isn't that beautiful? God loves us so much. He's not a tyrant. He's not just trying to tell us what to do for, for the heck of it. He loves us and he wants to sit with us and commune with us and have a good time. That's what he wants to do. But again, let me, let me start on something kind of dark and we'll work our way back to light. All of us have been Judas. All of us. Every single one of us in this room has sinned. Every single one of us has been selfish. Every single one of us has fallen short of our potential. If you have not yet, it's probably because you're really young. Give it time, you will. We have all betrayed our creator. 
Listen, all of us. I would dare say if I were to bring every single one of you up here one by one, you can all say, yes, I have fallen short, right? I have fallen short. I've made mistakes. I've sinned. I've been selfish. All these things. But here's the beautiful and kind of crazy thing about Jesus. Even though we have stabbed him in the back, even though we have been selfish, even though we have sold him out countless times, Jesus still absolutely loves us. Now, I know that sounds like, well, okay, yes, that's what pastors say, right? Think about it this way. I don't know why I didn't make this a, a different color. He knows us completely and still loves us fully. Think about it. My wife comes to the seven o'clock. She sits over here. My wife and I have been together for 23 years, married for 16. We dated for seven. We have been through hell and high water together. Like we can read each other's minds, man. I love that woman so much. She loves me. But if she knew every single dark thought that had ever gone through my head, she may not love me as much as she does now. Listen, Jesus has seen everything dark that has ever run through my mind. And the book of Romans says he still died on a cross for me knowing every evil thing about me. God completely knows us and he still completely loves us. Let that soak in. Not just that, he wants to be with me. He wants to sit with me, he wants to laugh. He wants to share a good meal and sing a song. That's what he wants to do. I'll do this again with you when we get to my father's kingdom. We're gonna celebrate, we're gonna laugh. No more crying, no more sadness, no more insecurities or depression or any of that stuff. No more hopelessness or strife or division. We're gonna sit and we're gonna talk and we're gonna laugh. It's gonna be great. And he wants that. Even though I have sold him out a million times, even though you have as well. So we have this great opportunity. We live in a culture right now. Do you know what I think this culture wants more than anything else? It's not money or fame or fortune or any of that stuff. I think what people want right now, this is why we have social media, is we want to be known. We want to make sure that we have somehow left a footprint on the earth before we leave, right? We want somehow, we want that, again, that's, if we're just honest with ourselves, that's why we post the things we post on social media, because we want someone to recognize that we exist, that we're here, What's ironic about that is Jesus looks at us and he says, regardless if anyone else knows if you exist or not, I know you exist. I knew who you were before you were even knit together in your mother's womb, the Bible says. I know you. I value you. You don't have to go looking everywhere for purpose. I can give you purpose so we can find value. We have the opportunity to find fulfillment and value in Christ. We have the opportunity today to be forgiven. That all the evil we've done that brings us shame and guilt, that, that gives us anxiety and paralyzes us, right? We can be forgiven of that. Not only can we be forgiven of all the evil we've done, we don't talk about this enough in church either. We can be delivered of that evil. It's not just that you can be forgiven for looking at porn. You can be delivered from porn addiction. It's not just that you can be forgiven for getting wasted Friday. You can step away from that and be delivered from even the desire to do those things. What's the point of having a relationship with Jesus if Jesus doesn't change us? It's not just that we're forgiven. We're delivered. We're taken out of Egypt, if you will, right? An exodus from sin. And all those things that drive us to hopelessness, we can be saved from that. It's not just that we can have the evil removed. We can live in such a way to where we don't go back to that evil. We don't talk about that enough in church. Liberation, freedom. And when we go through this, when we're forgiven and we're liberated, Paul says that the old self dies, right? says that the old self has been crucified with Christ and we walk in a new way of life. And when we do that, we find direction. We find peace. We find security. I'm not trying to be mean this year. And if you've fallen prey to this, I'm not trying to make fun of you. But this whole year, people are like, well, what about the elections? What about this pandemic? What about the economy? And I say, God's in control. God's in control of it all. But listen, hold if we don't have a relationship with him, it's no wonder why people go to fear. 
and hopelessness and despair and hatred and anger because they don't have the Prince of Peace in their life. It's impossible to have peace and security without the Prince of Peace being in our hearts. But with him, we can have love and joy and hope. He gives us these things. But listen, we have to want these things. So a couple of, couple of very simple things. Today, today, before you leave these doors, today will you choose to humble yourself and let God forgive you of your sin? Let me tell you, the most foolish thing that you can do today, the most foolish thing is to walk out of this place with sin in your heart because you don't have to. Now listen, I know you can repent anywhere. You can repent in your car. You can repent in your home. You can repent when you're out of town. I get that. But right now we are in an environment where we are all hearing the word of God. We're in a church. We've worshiped together. We're about to take communion. All of the ingredients are here for us to just say, God, forgive me of the evil that I've done. We would be complete fools to walk out of this building without being completely square with the man upstairs. We have that available for us right now. But will we humble ourselves enough to say, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. I've done things that I shouldn't do. God, forgive me of those things. Now, listen, it's not just enough to say, God, forgive me. We have to, when we leave these, these, these doors, when we walk out of this building, we have to want to walk away from evil. So it's not just enough that God forgives you of looking at pornography. You got to shut the laptop. You got to put some software on there. Heck, you may have to throw it out the window, right? Of a moving car on the freeway, over a river, whatever you have to do. Take whatever steps you have to do to walk away from that evil. And listen, does that mean you're going to be perfect? No, you're going to make mistakes again. But when you do ask God to forgive you, God picks you up, brushes you off and says, let's get moving, right? So it's not just asking for God to forgive us. It is taking the steps to walk away from that evil. And then when we walk away from that evil, we have to do what this book tells us to do. Now that's hard. I'm going I'm to shoot you straight. I don't ever want to lie to you. Being obedient to this word means that you might not be able to be with that boy. It means that you may have to leave that job because there's too many temptations. It means your lifestyle might change. It means that you might talk differently, look differently, act differently, think differently. Because God doesn't leave us the way he finds us. That's easier said than done to be obedient to the word of God. Sometimes it's tough, but let me tell you what. If we humble ourselves and repent, if we choose to walk away from evil, if we choose to be obedient to God's word, let me promise you this. You will find a peace and a solace that makes absolutely no sense in this world. You will find rest when everyone else is losing their minds. You will find peace when everyone is wrapped up in chaos I'll tell you what, it took me, this church will be 12 years old in February. Been doing this, been doing this church thing for, for pastoring a big church for 11 and a half years now, almost 12 years. I'm ashamed to say it's taken me this long to figure out what I'm about to tell you, but I'm gonna tell you what God's done to me in 2020. And listen, what I tell you here, I'm not trying to say this boastfully. I'm not trying to brag on this. At the beginning of this year in February, this church, this church not our other campuses, just this one was running almost 6,000 people. All four services were packed. The parking lot was always packed. We'd sit on Monday mornings on a big whiteboard and we're like, what do we do? Do we you know, build another parking lot? Do we go to five or six services? Do, what do we do, right? And we're trying to strategize because all this growth. And then within a month, I was standing up here looking at nothing. And I think the best attendance number we've had since February has been about 2,300 so to see something be way up here and then go way down there, it's hard, man. Especially from this vantage point, it was difficult. You know what I've learned this year, though? The results are not up to me. This is the freedom that I have found. This is the peace that I have found. So I don't, I don't look at the results and say, well, well gosh, what, what can I do? Can I work more? Can I study more? Can, can I preach harder? Can we do this? Can we do that? Can we make the music better? What can we do? Trying to build up all these works to, to produce a result. What I found myself doing this year is saying, God, if I'm doing everything you want me to do, the results are up to you. Because the Bible says we plant, 
We water, but it's God that makes things grow. Do you wanna know the peace that I found this year? Is that all I need to be asking myself is am I doing, am I being obedient to what God wants me to do? And if I'm being obedient for what God wants me to do, all the results are completely out of my control. The chips will fall however they fall. And I just have to trust that God has my best interest in his heart. Do you know what we do? We live in a world right now that says work harder and you'll be good. And Jesus says, you can't work hard enough to be good. The only work that will give you goodness or righteousness is not your work, but the work Jesus has already done for you. There is a peace and a rest knowing that I can never be good enough, but because God loves me and because of what Jesus did on the cross, he sees me as righteous. He sees me as good. He sees me as holy. Not because of what I've done, but because what, if he, what, what he has done. There is a liberation in that. There is a freedom and a peace in obedience to Jesus. I would love for you to experience that. I'm so sorry it took me 12 years to find it, but I just found it this year. That kind of peace. Man, I don't, I don't know, and I'm sure I don't say it enough, and I'm not just saying it because of the month that it is. I want you to know that God absolutely loves you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how evil you've been. I don't care what you even plan on doing when you leave this place. Jesus loves you, loves you, and wants to build a relationship with you. That is the good news. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Hey, listen, if you're in this room and, and maybe you're a believer, maybe you're, you're not a believer, but maybe you have questions, maybe you're, you're searching for answers, if you want to come up here, up on my right, your left, Pastor Muhammad is up here on the corner of the stage. If you have any questions for us, would you just please come up here and talk to Pastor Muhammad? We also have men, on, men and women on both sides of the stage that would like to pray with you if you need prayer for anything. And if you don't want to get too close, we can stay five, six feet away and pray with each other. Or on both sides of the stage, okay? The last thing is, is you have communion in your hands. We talked about that a lot today. It represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ that loves you, gave his life for you. His body was broken, the bread. His, his blood was shed, that's the, the, the wine. And then if we will ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, we can, we can be reminded of how much he cares for us and loves us and how one day, one day, it's not gonna be like taking communion right now. One day we're gonna sit and have a big meal with Jesus. And we're gonna laugh and we're gonna sing and we're gonna be with him in paradise forever. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I love this church so much, God. I pray that you encourage us, strengthen us, God. Protect our families, protect our neighbors, protect our friends. Lord, until we meet again, God, I pray that you keep us healthy and strong. God, for people who may struggle with hopelessness and depression during this time of year, I pray that your Holy Spirit gives them peace. For those of us who are confused and anxious and stressed, God, I pray that you give us peace, Lord, and solace and rest. Lord, don't let us think that we can do anything to be good. But Lord, let us just lean on what you've already done for us. We love you, Father. We thank you. We love you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys.